Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to April's slightly delayed edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Firstly, I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrials Energy, to run through some of the key talking points from last month. But before we start, I'd just like to flag Battery Materials Reviews, how to invest in hard rock lithium. We often get questions from listeners on elements of the industry, and we've tried to put as much knowledge as we can into this report, which discusses all elements of investing from basic to advanced. It's well worth a read, and it's a snip at £20. Check it out on our website to download it. Hi, Cormac. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? Good, good. Good good six weeks. It's been a a bit of a time since the last time we did. Is it six weeks? Oh, wow. My fault. I was at a conference in Hong Kong, so uh, yeah. Do, Do tell us. What was that one? It was actually, it was a very interesting, it was a BMP Paribas conference on uh, electric vehicles and uh, met some interesting companies and, and investors as well. Yeah. So quite, was it, uh, uh, quite interesting to, to find out a little bit more about sort of what people were thinking in China and greater China. Fantastic. What's happening with EVs? Well, a lot of questions on sodium iron, which uh, plays in quite nicely with uh, with this month's uh, focus article on the yeah. um, battery yeah. materials review. You are very lucky you didn't call the show Lithium Battery Materials Review because <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you didn't box yourself in. Yeah, I would have had to go for a quick name change. But, uh, <laughs> I think the, the whole sodium iron thing is, is very, very interesting. I went into the article with concerns about the sodium part of the value chain and i came out of the review with concerns about sort of other parts of the value chain particularly around anode materials um and you know hard carbon which is a very small market at the moment but if demand takes off in sodium ion batteries is going to have to go up by about 10 or 15 times and you do wonder how easy it's going to be to add 10 to 15 times current capacity in that industry that's an interesting takeaway. And I think the other thing about sodium iron is we're obviously getting a lot of colonies about it, but what's actually sort of under development and, and what is in use? So, you know, sodium iron potentially could be important probably in the latter part of this decade, but it's not going to be, I don't think, impactive over the next 12 to 18 months because there simply isn't enough production capacity on the cell manufacturing side, and indeed, certainly not on the raw material side to sort of bring it into production quickly enough. So it's very interesting. We spoke to a number of, I mean, one of the things you hear about sodium iron is great for two-wheelers and ESS. We spoke to a number of Indian two-wheeler developers, and, and nobody was talking about sodium iron. They're all still focused on lithium iron. And this Ditto, we spoke to Grace China ESS developers. And again, nobody's talking about sodium iron. They're still focused on lithium iron. So I think, you know, you are seeing a lot of stories on it. But I just wonder how much it's actually being used or, or, or being developed. Because I noticed, for instance, just in the last couple of days, the, the Cherry article. I mean, Cherry is actually part owned by CATL, isn't it? So, you know, how many 
guys actually out outside the the big battery developers are actually going to utilize sodium ion for their vehicles interesting uh, uh CHL had a number of announcements this week with the sodium not being the biggest uh, but uh of their announcements but the, yeah yeah it's interesting from what I've read and and discussed with my Chinese colleagues is that um similar to you sodium is going to be if it is applied will cater to the sub 300 kilometer market and that is in uh, CATL's plan as well where you know they have uh, the Kirin battery for, uh, high nickel Kirin for um up to 1000 kilometers and then if the M3P for the 400 kilometer but yeah sodium it seems to be in their plans for the A00 class mini EV and they're really pushing it yeah pushing it out this week with the grand announcement at the Shanghai Auto Show they showed some interesting uh, numbers, though, um, getting very close to be on par with a generic LFP battery. And that's quite interesting. But like you, uh, I'm a bit concerned about the supply chain. You know, traditionally, one of the main sources of sodium is similar to where we get the main sources of lithium, which is salars and uh, salt deposits. As you know, sodium is one of the impurities that we remove in the process of producing lithium carbonate. So yeah. I wonder, can they both go hand in hand because you're already selectively removing sodium and selectively retrieving lithium. So it's quite interesting. I'm hearing from some developers that sodium hydroxide is the key product. And of course, sodium hydroxide is a major industrial commodity. But the obviously the big issue then is how do you get from industrial grade sodium hydroxide to battery grade sodium hydroxide, you know? There's still not a lot of information about that and, and, you know, whether you can do that at a, at a relatively small level is not in doubt. But how easy is that to do at a commercial level and what are your recoveries at a commercial level and, and things like that? And, and can you, in fact, go from industrial grade sodium hydroxide to battery grade or do you have to use another, another approach? There's sodium carbonate exists as a mineral in nature. It's mined. Can you use that? Do you have to purify it? So, I mean, there's, I think there's still a lot of questions about the supply chain in sodium and how viable it is going to be to upscale it to the sort of volumes that we're talking about. I mean, in our work, we did a scenario analysis just looking at, you know, if sodium got, or sodium iron got 50% of the ESS business, if it got 50% of the two-wheeler business, if it got, you know, say 5% of the electric vehicle business what would be the demand and it, it spouts out some quite substantial numbers you do wonder but of course i, I mean i think there there is a you know very material risk out there that it's going to replace low-grade lfp batteries and that potentially will will have an issue on you know some of the more generic lfp developers um, and, you know, I think one of the things that's come to the fore, I mean, moving into lithium, one, one of the things that's come to the fore in the last six months or so is the overbuild in the LFP supply chain in China. Overbuild, uh, announcement overbuild, maybe, but, uh, yeah, there's about well, five million tons. Yeah. You're sitting, you know, looking at quite substantial inventories of LFP cells at the moment. This is one of the reasons why operating rates in the LFP supply chain are, are relatively low because we're working through quite a substantial inventory of LFP cells, of, of LFP, well, not so so substantial, but some LFP cathodes as well. And obviously, the lithium carbonate inventories are at relatively high levels. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, we see this huge bifurcation between the 
lithium carbonate price in China, which is, it just hits more new new lows every week. And then the lithium hydroxide price in China, which is actually holding up relatively well. I mean, it's down, but it's holding up much better. And the lithium hydroxide price abroad, which again is very, very robust. It's very interesting to see that and, and whether that will continue. I wrote that blog article about the marginal cost of production and about how we were nearing the marginal cost of production. And, um, and let's be realistic, we're $10 a kilogram below where where we were when I read that blog article, but we are starting now to see lithium production cuts out of China. We're starting to see production cuts in the lipidolite space because we've moved now below the marginal cost of production, and we're yeah. starting to see production cuts from lithium converters as well. And I think you know it's only a matter of time before we start to match supply with demand. I've heard the same thing. First to go is the low-end mica lipidolite producers who have very high margins and uh, was fine when it was 600,000 RMB a ton. Now those guys are in serious trouble. I think uh, the larger, your chinkies, your gang fangs are a lot more robust, obviously. Uh, And I think it will just uh, clean out this cycle. If it is a cycle, uh, we'll clean out some of the lower end. I think in many ways, this is great because this cleaning out of the lower end assets also potentially delays a lot of the lipidolized investment that that was slated to come on in 24, 25. I yeah. think now producers will be looking at their economics for a little bit more carefully and going, well, actually, is there any point in dropping a couple of hundred million into the, these developments if they could very well be below the marginal cost of production for huge periods of time? We may see a slowdown in the development of certain of these, particularly the non-integrated lipidolite assets out there which is great for the industry because it sort of extends the cycle in the long run. Yeah, yeah. I was just looking there, Chinese overheads for lipidolite, uh, according to some industry analysts, and uh, uh, so domestic lipidolite mining and, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, integrated. And spodumene are like a third of the price uh, or the costs of ex-China, which is uh, quite interesting. So they seem to think it, if you're a larger player, not the mom and pop lipidolite miners that some of that investment will continue to roll in, but internationally, um, it's still uncompetitive compared to China. For lipidolite, yes. I mean, for spodumene, it's substantially... I I mean, if you're integrated in spodumene, like the Western Australian producers, then it's very, very cheap to produce spodumene. You can do it for like $12 or $15 a kilogram, so so that's not an issue. But obviously, non-integrated spodumene, that's a real problem because... Obviously, they're buying spodumene at spot prices in Australia and then shipping it to China and then trying to process it. That's definitely out of the market, as I said in the note. But if you're integrated in spodumene, like the Western Australian producers uh, are, are starting to move in that direction, then um, there's no problem with pricing at all. Yeah, that's quite interesting the way that kind of shifted to the integrated model being uh, the way it's going to, the way it should be going forward. And so, you know, as you know, there was a lot of lithium uh, spodumene converters all scattered throughout China and it's uncompetitive against uh, yeah. uh, the domestic producers who are yeah. integrated I mean, producers. It's, it's certainly uncompetitive intercarbonate at the moment and it's, it's touch and go into hydroxide. You know, it's on the margins into hydroxide at, at these prices with these spodumene prices it's hemorrhaging cash into carbonate. So um, I think in many ways, it's very good what's happened because it's a dose of reality for the industry. And, you know, a lot of these sort of willy-nilly 
sort of investments that were just going to to lock in margin, I think people will will kind of rethink those now. Yeah. Uh, did you, you know, Gangfang, Chinky, uh, don't seem to be hitting the panic button yet. Some of the CEOs have gone on record saying they anticipated to go even lower, under 150,000 RB uh, a ton. You know, obviously they can still make money uh, at that level, but um, the margins are going to be very tight unless you're the Gangfangs, Chinkies of the world. I think that's fair. I mean, uh, you know, if, if you've got a brine production asset in Latin America, chances are, uh, you know, your cost of production are materially below that. If you're integrated into hydroxide in Western Australia, again, your costs are going to be materially below that. So those kind of producers can take the pain. It's the, the non-integrated guys who are in China buying Western Australian SpotCon or who are using Chinese SpotCon at... Um, at spot prices, those those are the guys who are hemorrhaging cash. So, um, I mean, I think that it could move. It could move a little bit lower in the near term, but I think it's going to bounce off that level over the next yeah. couple of months. And, and yeah. certainly, we've seen quite a lot of strength in the spot yeah. price recently. Yeah, regarding um, uh, the carbonate spot price, I'm just looking at volumes. Volumes are very, very low. So, is that really? Is it's just reflective of low volumes, trading volumes in China? Is it yeah, I mean, I, I think a, a big how market? indicative is that actual spot price? And nobody's really got to the, the bottom of, of how indicative the actual spot price is. But certainly we're seeing, you know, most Western world producers selling on contracts and the contracts point at the last quarter's spot price averages. So, and it's mostly the international spot prices, which haven't come down to any great, well, not to the extent that the Chinese spot prices have come down by. So how indicative is the spot price that, that you're seeing? May it only be for sort of 10 or 15% of material? Don't really know. Yeah. We don't really know yeah. what, what's going on. But a lot of the, the prices that are, that are being quoted, particularly sort of the Wuchi prices on the, on the futures exchange, that's a financially settled instrument that has no physical settlement. So there's no, it's not a real price. It's not a real industry price. It's just what sentiment is saying in China. Yes, yes. Quite interesting. So you, are you getting a lot of panic calls or? Quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what? I, I mean, obviously I've nailed my colors to the wall. With yeah, I know, piece. yeah. I said that, uh, you know, the prices of bottom house and will bounce quite strongly. I mean, I have to say that was squeaky bum time for the first couple of weeks after <laughs> I wrote that because yeah. prices kept falling. But now we're starting to hear more positive news out of the industry. And uh, I stand by my view. I think that we, we are, you know, below what I would regard as the marginal cost of production. And, and generally, prices will bounce off the marginal cost of production. You're a brave yeah. man to make, make those kind of predictions. Yeah, well, that's what they pay us the big bucks for. Or oh, big bucks. All right. All right. Okay, yeah. cool. Quite a big news month for China in the in the sell space. What what else stood out for you? Yeah, what well, stands out for me and what I monitor on a monthly basis is the Gigafactory announcements, Cam Factory announcements, and uh, graphite processing. And all dropped, all dropped um, in terms of capacity announcements and, giga, and gigawatt announcements. So interesting. Again, yeah, sodium is uh, sodium's taken up a lot of uh, column space, actually, uh, in China. It's a bit of a momentum behind it. And this kind of reminds me of LFP. Maybe it'll get, a, you know, a percentage of the market from reading, from reading what you wrote. Uh, you anticipate mm -hmm. yes, there's a possibility that um, 
or in your one of your scenarios, uh, sodium could get fifty percent of the say of the ESS market, which is huge. Yeah. One of the things that people don't understand is the ESS market has the potential to be bigger than the EV market in terms of uh, uh, gigawatt hour terms by the end of uh, the next decade. So you know, it's a substantial, it's a big, big market. In many ways, it's actually quite positive if sodium iron does take a little bit of market share away from lithium iron, particularly in the ESS and the two-wheeler market, because it means that the market is not so highly stressed. I mean, one of the big issues was the latter part of this decade, the early part of the next one. You know, the supply-demand gap that we forecast is so huge. Now, that's not great for the industry to have such a huge supply-demand gap, because that means, you know, more high prices, more price volatility. It's just not great. So, if you know, sodium iron can take away 10, 15, 20% of that of that demand, then potentially, I think that's actually a positive for the industry. Yeah, that's a huge, you know, it sounds like some small numbers, but that's huge. That's like bigger in today's industry, entire battery industry. Lithium needs all help it can get. And, and we've been discussing for a while, especially in the energy storage sector, we don't have to be married to lithium in that particular sector. You, yeah. As you mentioned all the time, you've got flow batteries, you have nickel hydride batteries, sodium batteries that we've been discussing for a while. Obviously, you've got the iron flow. Many options, and 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 the and the ESS market has got is a lot more flexible uh, in terms of the applications. And you know, sodium, uh, as we know, we have short-term, long-term lithium suitable for long-term. And when it starts to bottom out, it's based on price per kilowatt hour. Lithium just gets too expensive to store 20, yeah. 20 hours of uh, of capacity. Where yeah, I mean, sodium I, I, I step in there. That's a really important thing to to bear in mind. I mean, the lithium your average lithium ion has got a um, duration of about one to two hours. Now you can do long duration batteries with lithium, but that means you have to double and triple up on your on your battery size and capacity, and that's where it starts to get expensive. So yeah. either you have to go for your long duration. Or obviously, if your sodium ion is a third to 50% cheaper than, than your lithium ion, then it's less expensive to double and triple up on it. And also, uh, you know, China, you know, one of the, app, the application they're planning, uh, I don't know if it came with your discussions, and it's an application they plan for LFP, which is the backup power for 5G towers, which China is investing heavily in. So uh, I, I can imagine it tipping, towing its way into the market, uh, getting those kind of niche sectors, um, as you said, two-wheeler. But, um, you know, as you, Sherry are releasing a car with, in, in cooperation with CATL. Not full, many details on the car. Is it 100% uh, sodium ion or is it this AB cell format that CATL are also pretty, uh, pushing? Which is a lot about that, where you mix sodium ion and, yeah. and lithium ion um, cells. And potentially that that could be a great great application because obviously it, it helps on the margins, but you've still got that lithium demand in there. Yeah, so interesting to see how that will turn out. But uh, looks like it's coming, but we haven't had outside China really, uh, have we? Sodium mine gigafactory announcement. There are some outside China developers, but we yeah. haven't heard anything in the way of anything substantial. I think there's a couple of projects out there that are talking about a gigawatt, two gigawatt hour factories, but. But nothing, you know. CATL announced the other day that they'll, they're going to bring five gigawatt hours on by 2024. The key thing about sodium ion that, that is so exciting and potentially interesting is the idea is that you drop your sodium ion production into your lithium ion gigafactory. There are obviously changes with the anode and the cathode material and yeah. also with the current collectors. I mean, it's um, all aluminium. You don't need to use copper, which is another factor which, which lowers the cost. So you don't need to use copper foil. 
but the idea is obviously you, you use um, sodium hexafluorophosphate instead of lithium hexafluorophosphate, the same separator. So basically, you, you're, you're basically just dropping your equipment into a lithium ion production line. Obviously, if they can do that, then that makes it very flexible. Basically, you can use midstream and downstream separator, electrolyte. Yeah, you're right. With uh, upstream, the uh, hard carbon and the undecided, everyone seems to have a different cathode material, which is kind of confusing. Yeah, uh, and, and, and how, to be how fair, you build that some out. of the cathode materials use nickel, which uh, would be yeah. um, obviously quite positive as an incremental source of demand for the nickel market. So there's elements of nickel, manganese, manganese yeah. iron. I've even iron. seen magnesium in there, which would be a disaster, I think. The problem is there's lots of different cathode materials. And, and, and to be fair, there's different anode materials as well, although hard carbon looks to be the most sort of effective and, and to balance the sort of environmental issues. Let's move on from China and talk a little bit about Europe and the US. Uh, obviously, the big news this month was the clarification on the IRA regarding what you could manufacture offshore and what needed to be manufactured onshore in the supply chain. Also, we had the um, publication of the European Critical Raw Materials Act uh, officially, which I have to say was a complete yawn fest. Did you have any any um, takeaways from the changes to the IRA or rather the clarification on the IRA? It clarified a little bit, but still, still a little hazy in terms of CAM materials being battery components traditionally are, are the, the metals, your copper foil, your aluminum foil. So cathodes, so cathode powder, I wouldn't constitute as a um, component, but cathode powder on a foil seems to be what they determine as a battery component. So uh, it's still a little hazy for me. I think for the, particularly for the Korean manufacturers, I think it was a positive because there was certainly the view that the, 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 the Korean cathode makers um, have the potential now to to utilize their own supply chain to some extent, rather than having to recite everything to the US. So I think there was a, a lot of excitement in the Korean um, cathode and, and cell manufacturing supply chain. 90% of their, their PCAM all comes from China, and they can't yeah. wean themselves off that anytime yeah. soon. They obviously then process that in their own plants and then ship it out. So from their point of view, it was a helpful clarification. You didn't really see, an, I mean, you, you know, you, 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 you compare that with, for instance, the European CRMA and it's difficult to, to be positive about Europe. And we still continue to see the sort of line of European companies sort of slowing down their development in Europe and potentially looking to North America. And I think Volkswagen was the latest one obviously choosing this cell factory in Ontario and you do worry about about Europe um, and its supply chain going forward because they just really haven't offered anything it's all sticks it's always it's all regulation and box ticking and everything and and they still haven't really offered anything in terms of breaks or incentives yeah much different to the IRA uh, you know I was thinking about the IRA lithium prices remain the way they are and US produced lithium is now going to be anywhere near those prices, right? Or materials, any battery material. So will the IRA still be enough to keep well, Chinese batteries and materials out of China? The IRA is the friendshoring. So under the friendshoring, any country with a free trade agreement with the US, which by the way covers Australia, Chile, and Canada, 
which are obviously massive sources of, of lithium. So um, they're, they're covered under the IRA. So yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be US source lithium. It could be lithium sourced from those countries and processed, possibly concentrated in those countries and then yeah. um, put into the supply chain. So that's what's so clever about the IRA that um, it allows products from, from other countries. And, and everybody's beating the bush down or beating the door down to, to get into those free trade agreements. So you hear that Indonesia is up to it. And, oh, yeah. Argentina. Argentina yeah. is up to it. And, yeah. you know, DRC obviously is beating the door down. And you're like, well, how likely is it, given that you've got such a huge investment from China and the US is trying to lock out China, that you're going to be able to get in? That's obviously a question for the American government. But uh, it's an interesting question. A bit of fun and games in the stock markets last month. We had Tell two me. pretty substantial, uh, well, beyond the normal funding games anyway. We had two pretty um, major short reports on uh, stocks in the area. And I guess we've already seen quite a few short reports on DLE stocks, but the, these were the first sort of short reports on mining stocks out there. And I have yeah. to say, the quality of the research in the reports was, was awful. I, I, I mean, the reports were on uh, Piedmont lithium and on Sigma lithium. And, you know, while they did point out one or two relevant uh, issues, the overall quality of the research was shocking. I mean, the Sigma one in particular, Red Light, it was written by a graduate trainee two weeks out of university that one had no idea how the mining industry works and, yeah. and two had no idea how industry at all works. You know, really shocking. I mean, if you're going to write a short report, surely, you know, you're going to look at what industry best practices and how the industry actually works. But it, it didn't really seem like either of the authors had even bothered to do that and would presume that they opened the door to being sued by the, the, the subject of the report quite, uh, quite considerably. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to read them, actually. Um... Oh, well, you didn't miss anything. Yeah, I mean, right. um, you can probably sort of use them as toilet paper, but um, yeah, there's, I, I don't think you missed anything by not reading them. How did it affect share price? Went down? Uh, um, I think um, in terms of, um, I don't think either entity was really massively impacted. I think um, Piedmont has a, a associate company in um in Africa called Atlantic Lithium, which which was was badly impacted by the report. But the actual entities that they were aimed at, I don't, I don't think um, suffered materially. So they didn't do what they wanted to do, shall we say. But um, I mean, it's just it's just shocking when you see research in inverted commas of, of that really poor quality and, you know, having having a dig management teams in that way i just think it's really poor was it more on the management teams than uh, the actual well I mean, feasibility of the project basically the, the nature of a short report is you're accusing the management teams of, uh, of trying to cheat the market and um but they the you know the way in which they did so was just based on really poor research and lack of understanding of the industry so uh, yeah I, I mean I can understand that it's you know lithium is is quite a um, specialized industry, but uh, still I um, you know the, the the quality of the research was all. 
Yeah, I'm looking at right now. I can I recognize some of these tables they they have referenced. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I won't go into I won't uh, deign to talk about the uh, details of the research, but uh, I, I mean, one of the reports um, complained that um, one of the companies that they were discussing had added to their resources, and you're like, well, you know, that company has spent tens of millions of dollars drilling to add to those resources, so you know that's yeah. probably how. It's like, yeah, it's, it's tragic, really. Uh, it, it was, uh, some of the stuff was absolutely tragic. Is it the first time they've seen a mining feasibility report? Yes, yeah. uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. And they complained about the reserves growing, and you're like, well, you know, that's that's the aim of a mining company to grow. They, yeah, yeah, keep drilling. About how the um, the reserves had grown because the price has increased, and it's like, well, yeah, the price did increase by five times, so, yeah. And that tends to make an impact in terms of the amount of uh, material that's economically mineable. So, yeah, yeah. That, that is something to consider. Anyway, okay, moving on from that, big news at the moment, uh, obviously, um, also in the, the stock area was the um, disclosure that um, Albemarle has been um, trying to bid for Liontown Resources in, in Western Australia. That's pretty interesting insofar as it was disclosed that Albemarle made its initial approaches sort of back end of last year um, yeah. and has continued to make slightly higher bids. And eventually, I think that uh, Albemarle decided to go hostile in, in the market. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether that comes through. Obviously, in, in October, price didn't look too attractive. After six months of declining spot lithium prices, possibly the price looks a little bit more attractive, but um, it's going to be very interesting to see what investors do. And I note, as we record this, essential metals investors have actually turned down Tianxi Lithium, uh, TLEA, Tianxi Lithium Energy Australia, I think it is, their offer for, for essentials, so, which we had previously commented was, was, was quite low, uh, low multiples. So, it's going to be very interesting to see whether that um, goes forward or whether Albemarle is going to have to um, go deeper into its pockets to acquire that asset. Have you got the uh, number under ton per ton? Not off the top of my head. Oh, all right. I could, yeah, it's yeah. BMR. I used to like you. You downloaded it down, downloaded it down to uh, distilled it down all the way to how much Albemarle are going to pay for line time per ton versus. Um, uh, Another uh, acquisition. Put it this way: I, I mean, on a on a multiple basis, the multiple is not expensive. Uh, I mean, there've been more expensive multiples in Western Australia. Yeah, if you want the detailed multiple analysis, you can have a look at BMR, but <laughs> I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, but uh, I mean, it's, it's very forward. interesting that, that that you know there there clearly is interest in these Western Australian spodcom slash integrate or potential integrated assets. And it does seem to suggest that the industry is looking at things in a different way to how the stock market is looking at these companies. And I think that's very important because obviously the, the, the guys like Albemarle are closest to the industry. And you've got to feel that if Albemarle has the certainty on the industry to bid for a 20 or 30 year project, they understand why they're doing that. And um, I think that's um, something yeah. that the stock market doesn't seem to understand at the moment. Yeah, you know, in, I remember the last lithium downturn. A few uh, Western Australian uh, mining projects went to the wall. Uh, yeah. Is there any danger in the, uh, on this term, on this time? 
So um, that was like no, pre-2020. I, I mean, I, I genuinely don't think so. I mean, if you look at the last lithium downturn, that was pre-demand, really. So the yeah. last lithium downturn happened because a couple of assets came into production at the same time. The market got drowned out. Yeah. Um, that's not the same this time around. And the other thing is, if you know, if spotcom prices go down from say five thousand to two and a half thousand, so that's fifty percent or something, another fifty percent from where they are. Most of those spotcom assets are still in the green in terms of margins. Prices would need to go back to a thousand dollars a ton, which looks really unlikely. I think. Uh, yeah, it was probably what was it. Four hundred or three hundred USD a ton back in uh, yeah four hundred dollars a ton, and and that's what pushed those those assets into the wall. And I just yeah. see that as being highly unlikely. And one of the reasons why it's highly unlikely is that as we you know talked about in in BMR, I think it was in the February issue, the marginal cost of production in the industry is rising. The marginal cost of production in the industry is rising for a number of factors, but one among them is that to bring all the supply into the industry that's going to be needed for the demand event, we're bringing on higher and higher cost assets into the industry. Yeah. So, you know, these 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 first run assets that were economic during the last industry downturn, I don't expect prices to ever go down in lithium to the level that they were at, that they dropped at previously. Yeah. And if yeah. you look at, you know, one of the 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 charts that I reference in the in the blog article I wrote is the copper chart from the last cycle. So if you look at copper prices between, say, 2002 or 2003 and 2012, the so-called commodity super cycle, copper prices never went back to the level they came from. So copper prices came out of sort of 2001, 2002 recession. So that they came from about 60 or 70 cents a pound, and they topped out at about just under four bucks. But they yeah. never went back to, to sub a dollar a pound. In fact, I don't think they've gone below two dollars a pound for any any length of time. And the reason for that is that that you had higher cost assets coming in and they made up the marginal cost producers in in the uh, in the industry. You know, if you're able to produce in 2000, 2001 and make a profit out of it, chances are you'll be able to produce all the way for the next 20 or 30 years. And and that's exactly the situation we see in lithium. And I, I don't expect that lithium prices will ever go back to the levels they came from. It's good to hear. Particularly if you're one of those producers that uh, uh, I don't know who I'm rooting. I don't know who I'm rooting for here because both of us are within throughout the supply chain. So you know, uh, downstream they like low prices. Well, it's not really working out for anyone at the moment. Low prices actually. But what's the sweet spot? You think? I mean, I, I think you know. I said it, I said in the article. I think probably uh, lithium prices should probably be looking to average about fifty or sixty dollars a kilogram over the next five or six years. Uh, I mean, it's not ideal for the ESS industry, yeah. but it is viable. I think by the time you, you get lithium prices heading up to sort of $80, $90 a kilogram, I think that makes things more marginal. And I think then you'll see a lot of interest in sodium iron and other techs. But I think, you know, at, at sort of $50, $60 a kilogram, there's a lot of margin, obviously, in the upstream portion of the industry. I'm not saying that the prices will average $50, $60, dollars a kilogram over the long run out into the 2030s or whatever i've you know long-term prices are probably 20 25 dollars a kilogram but at, at this period where we're seeing huge increases in demand and just supply is really struggling to meet that yeah i think a, a higher price over a extended period is certainly possible 
it's hard to, to see if we're we're not feeling the surge in demand at the moment, right? It's a it's a little, well, it's a little negative in China. It's consistently stronger, um, but obviously, yeah, it, low base, but yeah, there's a um, there's a few things going on at the moment. You know, the subsidies, of course, was a a big a big thing. We have, as you mentioned earlier, overcapacity in true throughout the supply chain. EVs overcapacity, cells overcapacity in China, and lithium products as well. But it's very interesting because if you see the um, sort of the seasonality charts that, that we use in, in BMR every month, you can see that actually EV sales in China globally are up. Well, globally, they're up sort of 15, 20%. And in China, they're up sort of 20% year on year in the first quarter. It's really, it's all about seasonality. It's all about the fact that EV sales and cell production were very strong at the end of 2022. And then they always are much, much weaker in the in the first quarter of the year, but they continue to increase. And if, you know, if EV sales continue to be up sort of 20% year on year on a global basis, that's a great result. And lithium demand will be very, very strong in the, in the middle and the, the last part of the year. Um, and, you know, if we clear out all of those inventories, in the supply chains, we're talking about sort of 30, 30 40 days of inventories and living. Yeah, one, trade one month, yeah. One month, that's about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no inventory sitting in the, in the hydroxide supply chain. So, you know, if we have a, a, a strong month, bang, all those inventories are gone. Where do prices go? One direction. So we're already in Q2. So we're expecting things to uh, Q2. So Q1, as you said, seasonal, quiet. Q2, we're uh, expecting things to pick up a little bit. Uh, so um, yeah. it'll be interesting. So, it's still a bit so slow. watch this space, but, but my gut feeling is things should start to improve. I mean, one thing to be aware of if you are watching the inventories is that the supply chain is quite long. So, um, you know, I would January, yeah. January was the worst month. Uh, February and March have been incrementally better. But the supply chain from the EV side to the raw material side could be six or seven months in, le- in length. You know, if you think about the supply chain, you know, you dig it up and concentrate it in Western Australia or in Chile, you then ship it to China, possibly for onward processing, certainly for the Western Australian material to sort of lithium carbonate or hydroxide. You then take that to a, your cathode plant. It might take a couple of weeks in transit, either side of being shipped to China and being shipped within China then goes on to your cathode plant, gets processed. It then may sit around for a little while. It goes to your EV plant, sorry, your cell plant. For processing, it might sit around for a couple of weeks again. Yeah. It goes to your EV plant. It gets included in there. Your EV might sit around for sort of two to three weeks or perhaps a month or something. So the supply chain is really quite long. And it could take, you know, five, six, seven months before you start to see the strength in, in the EV markets percolating down into raw materials. That is true. It's basically a month. It'll sit a month at almost every step, the product. That's one thing we do forget, that uh, the supply chain is long. Could be back end of the year before you see it. But it's still growing 20% in China, of course. But the whole automotive industry, you know, there's a battle going on now between uh, the EV players, uh, not just EV players, but the auto industry. They're calling it an EV or auto battle. Basically, Tesla is initiating the, uh, the price, price cuts. Yeah. Uh, BYD yeah. don't want to partake in that. Uh, they're being dragged into it a little bit. It's quite interesting, uh, you know, because Tesla have a totally different business model to BYD. Tesla, as Elon announced yesterday in the um, in the report, uh, saying the earnings report, that they can survive on low margins and make it at the back end with the uh, 
Auto autonomy, where BYD. Well, I, I think this is this is a really in, in interesting question for the for the EV market because I think there's probably only two or three EV manufacturers, pure EV manufacturers, you know, out there that can survive for a long period on low margins. And I think possibly Tesla is trying to knock out some of the the new entrants because obviously there's a long runway between sort of coming into production and hitting volume production at your targets. And yeah. while not doing that, because of your huge fixed cost base, I mean, it takes a couple of billion dollars to build an EV factory. So that's a big fixed cost base. Um, yeah. If you're producing at sub 100% capacity utilization or 98% capacity utilization or something, then your costs are huge on a per unit basis. So the potential to knock out some of the late entrants to the industry is pretty substantial. And obviously, from Tesla's point of view, that makes a lot of sense to knock some of these guys out and you know if they're interesting pick up their assets for pennies in a in a pound cents in a dollar the chinese ev unicorns are hemorrhaging billions of usd so yeah. they're under a lot of pressure and if they did sign up for the uh, catl lithium rebate it's not looking good for them right now either um, <laughs> so yeah it's a quite interesting time it's just but basically uh china you got the two big boys battling it out BYD and uh, Tesla. And I think the other thing that's really interesting that came out of this conference is that um, increasingly the Chinese producers are looking at exports in EV land. Oh, the yeah, exports are huge. Perception yeah. in the Western world that Chinese cars are not very good, but actually Chinese EVs are very good. And you know, in terms of the the build quality and the cockpit in the Chinese EV. They're probably head and shoulders over most of what you can get in, in Europe and the US. So it's going to be quite interesting to see those cars potentially competing, I think, more in Europe, not, not so much in the US. Yeah. But it's going to be quite interesting to see them competing in Europe with the incumbents. The uh, Chinese EV exports are up hundreds of percent. It's a yeah. huge. The test uh, BYD just two million units last year or something like that. Uh, not two million. I think like one point two. But yeah, a lot. BYD just commissioned a, a, you know, which is interesting. I said it a few years ago because I was in the shipping industry, but specific, you know, because there's problems with EVs, could be potential problems shipping EVs that they go on fire and take down the whole ship. BYD have commissioned their own uh, electric vehicle car carrier, so they're building it from scratch, commissioning specifically purposed for that. Uh, uh, so, so it's interesting. So, you know, in generic car carriers, if something goes wrong, the whole thing's going down. It doesn't have to fire safety systems that are required. That's the commitment. I and mean, we already know BYD have huge uh, global plans. I mean, yeah. Latin America, what are they, they're doing that there is fantastic as well. They've more or less cornered the uh, entire uh, electric bus market down there. But yeah, exports is a big business. Interesting, they um, just, I, I believe, I might have it wrong. I think China overtook Korea in car exports this year. We might have that wrong. That's huge. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so watch this space. Okay. We'll wind it up there. I will say, Thank you very much to Cormac, and uh, we'll be closer to our normal time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah, I'm going to be in Singapore next month. Uh, so fast markets, if you're going to be there, or uh, if not, uh, we can I probably do the call from there. But oh, I, okay. I actually shall be at fast markets in Las Vegas in June. So congrats! Um, That's the one you always yeah. wanted to go to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Las okay. Vegas uh, fast markets. All right. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. That's yeah. great. Thank you very much, Cormac. Talk to and, you next uh, month. We'll speak next month. Cheers. Bye. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for April. I'd just like to flag again our Battery Materials Review Yearbook, which is on the website, which you can download free. 
And as always, you can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Boundary Materials Review, which you can find at www.boundarymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.